0: AI right now is a savant, not a genius. It can do one niche thing incredibly well, but the moment that you turn the picture of the cat upside down, it no longer knows whether it's a cat, a dog, or a blueberry muffin. As long as you
1: keep it oriented correctly with far better than human accuracy, it'll get it right. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Kevin Lyman was once the world's highest-ranked warlock in
2: Worlds of Warcraft, and today he's CEO of Analytic, a company applying deep learning to radiology. We can follow his journey today.
1: This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywitz. And I'm Lisa Soonan,
2: and we're grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's episode of Tectonics. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. So How are you doing today, David? Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lisa. Um, so, our guest today, Kevin, has had some really interesting jobs, uh, and all while he was in high school and college, and in, 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 well, actually, mostly while he was in high school and college, not counting his current role. Um, what was your most interesting college or high school job?
1: Yeah, well, I'm happy we have Kevin because it looks like maybe we can average each other out. Um, (laughs) I mean, I assume you mean like after my summers at math camp, but Yeah, um, uh, yeah, um, really I was in molecular biology labs essentially since, um, like early in high school, like every summer. I mean, it was actually kind of a pretty amazing experience, but, um, uh, You know, whether that's real work or not, uh, I don't know. Maybe I got some pipette calluses. I don't know. But uh, (laughs) what about you, Lisa? I sold shoes
2: for a whole lot of time when I was in high school and college. Really? I did. And I loved it. Well, of course, you know, I have a shoe fetish. But um, it was like so fascinating from a sociological standpoint to meet people who would come in and be looking for whatever and then to make them happy as they walked out. It was so much fun. But dealing with people's feet, I mean... <laughs> There's worse parts to people, let me tell you. So, let's talk about Kevin. Uh, Kevin Lehman always wanted to be a scientist, even before he was sure of what that meant. Having worked everywhere from Hasbro to SpaceX to Microsoft before graduating from college, Kevin is now settled in as CEO of Analytic, where he can apply science and ingenuity to healthcare, an area that he views as one of the few where you can do something to help people. Kevin, it is great to have you on the show today.
0: Thank you for having me
2: um so let's start with what's really important here in your life's journey how does one get to be the world's highest ranked warlock in world of warcraft
0: <laughs> by spending a lot more time on it than they probably should
2: uh, <laughs> so like what the hell what does that even mean i mean that seems like a big thing uh,
0: yes uh Surprisingly, it seemed even more fake back then, and now that gaming is a bigger industry than basically anything else in entertainment, people finally take it seriously. But uh, back in high school, uh, I had gotten into World of Warcraft and um, got very into both competitive, um, what they call PvP, which is player versus player, as well as PvE, which is player versus environment. And in both cases, you know, wound up eventually spending like 12 to 16 hours a day just on World of Warcraft, and oh I cow. guess that. I think
1: I saw a South Park on that one. I know. Yeah. <laughs> it, it actually
0: was exactly like that episode of South Park. That's pretty much, uh, unfortunately, an accurate depiction of what it's like to get good at uh, World of Warcraft, which is yeah. why I stopped to focus <laughs> on better you,
2: And you were also a professional Halo Two player, right? Yep. yep. Did you did. make money doing it. I mean, did you do well?
0: I did, were yeah. You, with, were um, you sponsored? With um, with Halo, I was sponsored just to go to tournaments and that's where you make your money. With World of Warcraft, uh, you get more of it just through sponsors sending you cool stuff all the time.
2: Dear Lord. You know, I work at a, at a firm where we represent a lot of uh, professional gamers, like as they're almost like their agents, right? And it's always so much fun to hear those stories versus the other stuff we do uh, so much more uh, interesting and funny. So you grew up in central New Jersey and always knew you were headed to a life of science, finding the pursuit of knowledge more interesting than the pursuit of sports. So many uh, young men do. What is it that sparked your interest in the scientific world?
0: I think um, early on, I found it just really interesting to try to determine how stuff works. I really liked taking things apart and tinkering with it to try to make it do something different, or at least at the, at the very least, understand better what it does and how it works. And it got to the point where I would start to extend that to systems that are not necessarily just devices, but, you know, anytime I encounter learning something new, I would be more interested in why the answer is what it is than what the answer is itself. And, um, you know, that, that just got me very interested in thinking about thinking. And, uh, my father was an engineer and, uh, you know, would always have very engine, uh, very ingenious solutions to a lot of things around the house and uh, there was always good opportunity to help him build things whether it be carpentry or plumbing or electronics and uh, it was just always around the good influence of keep your hands busy and do something useful.
2: And so my dad was a was an engineer and whenever he would find a project around their house we all ran in different directions because he would <laughs> always end up swearing and throwing things. Um, so you were a student at Rensselaer Polytechnic and you took a number of jobs during that experience including a toy designer at Hasbro, and a sensor designer on the falcon rocket for spacex you joined the excel team at microsoft which of those was the most fun and why
0: definitely hasbro uh it's a lot of fun to build crazy high-tech toys even if most of them don't end up being practical in the setting of being sold as consumer electronics for children but it was a really great opportunity to uh learn how to rapid prototype just always figure out how to use new technologies and apply them to new problems and to get to do it in a very um, entertaining environment really helps build that passion for building things very early on.
1: Were there any parts that the movie Big Gets Right? <laughs> uh, all of them.
2: <laughs> so what was the coolest thing you built there?
0: Uh, I, I, I love almost all of it. Now, my first project there, I think, is probably the best example to, to give people a sense of what it was like. But my uh, first day there, uh, I had one of the VPs come to my cubicle and explain to me how I would have one week to build a Nerf gun controlled by brainwaves. And uh, of course, my response to that is, um, what does that mean and how do I do that? And their response was, that's what we hired you for. (laughs) So, you know, it was um, by the end, I wound up building a um, basically a machine gun on a turret pivot that you could think left, right, in order to pan it left, right with an EEG headset, as well as control the rate of fire by um, basically concentrating on it. And so it was a really great way to, um, you know have a week to figure out how to um you know interface different complex technologies work with eeg for the first time get to implement the robotics around actually controlling a nerf gun while it sounds like a reasonably complex thing it was actually a a pretty simple project to give somebody in that position early on to learn the systems thinking of, of how to put something like that together
1: say what now as my daughter would say (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is a brain-controlled Nerf gun turret pivoting. Yeah, yeah, week. I mean, it's pretty simple, really. <laughs> is, is, is <laughs> so, that do you just use like,
2: that as a management graduate? tool in your weekly meetings now, Kevin? I mean, I really <laughs> hope you bring you bring that to the office.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny you say that at Hasbro. That actually is the culture that um, people, at, at least in the department I was in, Advanced Technology Innovation. Everybody's cubicles are sort of set up like like armed fortress uh, fortresses where you've got all sorts of fun Nerf guns lining the top of them with security systems to keep people out of it. It was uh, a, a very collegiate environment in that way.
2: So you must have been the guy on the dorm floor at school <laughs> that everybody wanted to have engineer like the cool drinking toy.
0: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you can imagine coming back to school while working at Hasbro uh, I would bring all sorts of fun toys back to uh, uh, reverse engineer into um, various fun college devices.
1: Excellent. Excellent. So I got I a quick question. So, you know, uh, what Elise was describing it, you know, you've had a, like a succession of different experiences. Um, but, you know, how do you balance sort of trying to stay for a while at one place and really sort of develop some of the, um, you know, longitudinal relationships and deeper experiences, you know, it's basically the depth versus the excitement of breath of trying out a bunch of different things. How did you think about if you did that balance?
0: I think that's a great question, especially because now that I'm on the, the hiring side of things, that's probably one of the things I scrutinize most in, um, in looking at a candidate's application. How long have they actually stuck with something uh, in order to, to, to build something, something great instead of experiencing a lot of different things a little bit? And uh, it's You have to decide,
1: I guess, if you're a company who wants to hire someone like you as an employee, right? <laughs> to paraphrase <laughs> <Basically, it. laughs>
0: Yeah, essentially. I've, I've learned to avoid myself, I guess. But if you look at my recent history, it actually tells the exact opposite. My first full-time job out of college was in Lytic, and I've been there for uh, almost five whole years now. And it's the only experience I've had since graduating. But the... I think when in college, my mindset was very much the opposite that, you know, now, now that I'm in college, it's not the time to commit to something full-time. I do almost want to sandbox something. So I know I'm going to come back and finish my degree, uh, much as groups like SpaceX try to convince you otherwise drop out and stay here. Uh, I felt it was easier to, to, I actually lined up most of those jobs where to go to one, I would have to leave the other, so SpaceX knew I would only be there six months. Microsoft knew I would only be there six months, et cetera. And uh, in college, I felt that was early on enough that that's, that's the time to figure out what you want to do. I changed majors eight times, and uh, between that and working four different jobs, uh, finally got a good sense that inlytic was what I wanted to do.
2: So you worked at SpaceX. Did you learn anything specific from watching Elon Musk? I'm curious, because he is such a polarizing figure for people. He's obviously brilliant, but... Um Also, you know, some people think he 's kind of out there um what What was your experience there, and but more specifically, what did you glean from that experience
0: yeah, that uh, SpaceX was a group that i I targeted specifically because um, I viewed it as engineering boot camp, and I think everybody still probably views SpaceX as engineering boot camp in that if you want to learn to be a kick ass engineer as quickly as humanly possible, you want to go to an environment where everybody is so passionate, not just about engineering but about the problem for which they are engineering where it's not just the environment that people have to work 16 hours a day. It's an environment where people look forward to working 16 hours a day because they know that they're contributing to this fantastic end goal that, that their life in their own determination is um, sort of dedicated toward. And that was probably one of the most important things that I learned there, that that makes a tremendous difference there's one thing to have people that are good at something, it's a completely different thing to have good people that are passionate about something. You know, Just constantly having that flame of motivation burning because you want to be there. Uh, you know, That's helped me build that kind of environment at analytic where we actually have great work-life balance, uh, but people choose to put in quite a lot of effort because they're so passionate about the technical problems they're solving and what those will be applied toward. I think beyond that, from an actual Um, engineering standpoint, everybody at SpaceX is essentially a reliability engineer. You don't just have, uh, you don't just have ownership of the thing you're building, you're in charge of making sure that that is tested in every conceivable way, where that has to be flawless if it's going into space. Mm -hmm. I've never been in an environment where, one of the first things I built there were oxygen sensors, which um, were originally designed in order to detect leaks of liquid oxygen in the, the rocket itself but since I've left, have been repurposed now for for human um, oxygen sensing within the the capsule. And you'd think you need to just test to make sure it can measure oxygen appropriately regardless of the environment. But in reality, you also have to check to make sure that it can survive humidity anywhere from zero to well over 100%. Um, Temperatures in the negative ranges all the way to the hundreds of degrees uh, it has to survive gamma radiation. It has to survive 30 Gs of of vibrational force. Uh, there really isn't any other environment where you're forced to think of what are a million ways this could possibly go wrong and how do I check all of that right now before it goes out the
1: door? Let me follow up on that because without um, the uh, engineering um, expertise that you have, total space junkie and really the whole thing you know obviously when first spacex you know sort of got going there were people who were wondering oh can private industry do this as far as you can tell from your like you said six months there do you feel like that you were approaching things in what ways were they similar to how nasa for example was doing it and in what ways were they different
0: that's a great question and um a lot of people at spacex are from nasa especially at the time and uh you know that really helps you isolate where a lot of those differences were and now that i look at it in retrospect a lot of them were were relatively intuitive for any kind of private versus public attempt at doing something and essentially it i would think about it as being all the same methodologies all the same science all the same rigor that that you'd see at a nasa but much 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 faster at a spacex uh right
1: because it's private sector you can like people is it, is it the motivation is it the people i mean you said it's even the same people so yep. that's fascinating right like it means that the intrinsic potential is there and is there a risk to doing it faster like is it because everything you just said it doesn't sound like it move fast and break things it sounds like move fast and be like super careful so you don't break anything you're
0: absolutely right and the way i would think about it is as a uh, you know in, in engineering they'll often teach a triangle of different factors you have to balance to get something done well. There's cost, there's quality, and there's speed. You can essentially, you can move two of those, but that will give you your answer to your third one. You can't have full control of all three of those. And in spaceflight, whether you're, you know, whether you're NASA or you're um, SpaceX, either way, quality cannot be sacrificed. That's the one that cannot be moved because it's going into space. There's no room for error either way between those two are cost and speed. And that's essentially the trade-off that we see between SpaceX and NASA, where early on in R&D, SpaceX was spending a lot more until they figured out how to mass produce this and how to do it much better. They were spending more faster, I would say, but in pursuit of how do we do this cheaper and mass-produced, such that the first couple might be expensive, but now we're mass-producing them incredibly quickly and at low cost. And typically the MO there was... Uh, You know, you have to do it right, but you are controlling for speed. Uh, Spend what you have to spend, get it done quick. Uh, And uh, I'm sure it's part of the follow-up question about how cost is affected there. It's also important to point out that anything that's ordered through government is automatically going to be marked up a lot more expensive than anything that's going through private industry. But
1: when people evaluated um, the challenge or tragedy, they talked about sort of cultural issues that led, you know, that, that underlie, you know, sort of lay it. And people not wanting to speak up or afraid they didn't have the data that speak up. Are there specific things that happen at SpaceX to try to correct for that potential problem?
0: Yeah, the the mentality there is very much that, you know, it, it's very clear that it isn't political. It's we are all here for the same purpose to get this thing done. And the moment that anything goes into potential crisis, it's, I've never seen anything like it, where, you know, I, I was there during um, one of the launches that the the launch itself was successful and the deployment of the satellite was successful. But the satellite started experiencing issues when it was in orbit. And we were unable to communicate with it. Essentially, it was spiraling out of control. Was this the
1: Facebook one or something? There was no, something this,
0: this was about okay. seven years ago or so. Okay. And um, so it was one of the earlier missions. And the moment that happens, you know, you have a couple thousand people in the company at that time. But instantly you can see the switch flip and everybody is just congregating into groups of, of eight to 16 people trying to figure out what is the solution to this problem? What is every possible thing that we can try in order to make this work? And it's just um, incredible to see how everybody's first instinct is put everything aside. All we need right now is solutions and answers.
2: You know, you're talking about space and the trade-off between cost, quality, and speed, and how the quality is always the is the constant, right? Why has this theory or this approach not been applied in healthcare? Why, you know, I mean, we wouldn't need a company like Analytic, right? If we had the same model in healthcare for technology, where you Never sacrifice quality, never tolerated mistakes, uh, at least at any, you know, consistent level. And yet we tolerate them constantly. Uh, and we tolerate, um, you know, sort of, eh decent enough, you know, products, instead of perfection. What, what is it that makes it so different?
0: I think it's, it's honestly, I, I do see it as being almost the same. I think the difference is that we haven't seen enough companies like SpaceX uh, apply that mindset to healthcare to show us that that's possible. And that's largely a, a big part of what we try to do it in Lytic, and part of the reason why I'm very grateful to have had that analogous experience at a group like SpaceX. But I think that just as it was in the aerospace industry, it, it is possible, but people haven't tried. And it's out of an inherent fear that um, ultimately people have a hard time imagining that you can go faster without sacrificing that quality. But in reality, if you understand the system and you, you know, I, I use the mathy term internally, treating it like a proof by induction where we'll do it once, we'll do it twice, then we'll figure out what the pattern is and how to just keep doing it uh, over and over again in the future. And in our case, um, everything that we build is, most things we build are considered medical devices by the FDA. They need to be regulated and monitored appropriately. They have to be very heavily validated before they can go out the door and then have um, very rigorous validation post-market beyond that point. And we have to do that at a much greater speed than most medical device companies because we're building lots of algorithms, each of which require approval and have to have that same kind of monitoring process go on. And that's where we see a lot of our competitors, even other medical AI companies tackling similar problems, still going at a relatively moderate speed because of the concern that it's hard to set up systems that that without sacrificing quality enable one to scale this. But that's really where we've focused a lot of our attention, perhaps most of it, in how do we understand what goes into building medical AI. Importantly, what goes into making sure medical AI works and what goes into making sure it works given the millions of different factors that we need to to take into account different patient populations incidences of abnormality definitions of what different medical device classes are but because we've specifically focused on not just how do we build a medical ai algorithm but how do we build a to borrow tesla terms gigafactory for clinical ai where the factory itself is the product Um, That mentality has really been how we've been able to achieve both speed and quality there Uh, because, you know, everything on that factory is about both that speed and that quality Um, and its job is to pump out those algorithms in a way where we're still monitoring it. I think um, there are analogies to that in every other area of healthcare, but people tend to think of just the end product instead of whatever system it was that went into building that product. And if you treat your own internal infrastructure like something that an external party is going to use and audit, then it enables you to be a far more effective business um, without uh, um, increasing the risk associated.
2: Yeah. I don't know. I think we allow for a much higher fault tolerance. uh,
1: Let let me ask you something, both of you, I guess. Um, So, you know, the analogy between, oh, we can put a man on the moon, but how come we can't, you know, it's sort of like the Gilligan's Island, you know, with the... um, yeah, you know, I don't know, you can build a radio from a coconut, but you can't fix a hole in a boat. But uh the um the the issue um that comes up a lot with healthcare is you know here's a quote from Roger Perlmutter, you know, the head of uh, research at Merck, who says put, you know that basically it's hard he says this, it's harder to bring a new drug to market than to put a man on the moon. He said, putting a man on the moon is an engineering exercise. Quote. Isaac Newton knew the calculations, whereas you know with, with things like with physiology, because we really understand very little about physiology. We don't know how the machine works, so it's harder to fix it. Um, do you? What do you think about that perspective? Which I really resonate with, but I'd be curious coming in as you know with the, the deep engineering roots and seeing the success in other fields. How you view that?
0: Yeah, I think there's uh, there are a lot of elements that are, of that that I think are very true. I think that um, anytime that we're comparing apples and oranges though, it's hard to sort of generalize those in every possible way, but just to, to sort of dissect either of those different types of problems. Well, how many drugs have been brought to market successfully? How many people have we put on the moon? Well, there is the one number far, far, far outweighs the other number. And so if we look at it that way, which one is really harder, um, from a purely technical perspective, I would almost certainly agree with that statement that the the human body is not very well understood, and there are just so many different factors that need to be controlled for that drug development and and any kind of treatment planning is extremely challenging, and uh, especially as we move toward individualized medicine. But whereas spaceflight and putting somebody on the moon is relatively straightforward math, the hard part are the factors that you didn't consider, which arguably is the same problem in healthcare. But in either case, if we step away from the technical problem and we look at the other reasons why one far outweighs the other, it's a social problem. It's the issue of convincing people that this is something worth investing in, that it's worth conglomerating around and putting our effort into. There's very little difficulty in convincing people that drugs are worth investing in. Hence, lots and lots of drugs have lots of money behind them and get put into market. The benefit is sort of inherently obvious. In spaceflight, it's much harder to convince people it's worth going to the moon. And if we look at why we went to the moon the first time, forty whatever years ago, it was for political reasons. We want to show that yeah. we can win and do this faster than anybody else. And as soon as we had done that and and won that race, well, then all the interest around it died out, and and people yeah, don't. That's actually yeah, totally I true.
2: think you guys are missing a big piece of it though, which is this is not just drugs. It's also mechanical devices used in healthcare, which fail constantly, by the way. Um, And, you know, the reason I think that, or a reason among the others that you mentioned, both of you that are really valid, is that I think when you're talking about guiding rockets to the moon, there's like 20 guys or men and women in the whole country who are going to be allowed to do it, right? Whereas in healthcare, there's a couple hundred thousand doctors who are going to be allowed to do it. And I think, you know, by definition, not everybody's great at what they do. So I think there's also that factor that that
1: goes into it, is sort of he- the, the, the operator er- error issue. Yeah, I would... So, prefer- you fi- so maybe some, some more centralized planning, is that where you're heading, Lisa? No, I'm
2: saying, you know, like, pick your doctor carefully, because there's probably only 10 that are good on a certain... one thing. <laughs>
0: that's yes, really uh, one thing I found that's incredibly shocking in working uh, in this space now is just the disagreement between doctors It's uh, very clear that if you ask, uh, you know, they they say the same thing about lawyers, but if you were to ask uh, 10 doctors each for an opinion, you're going to get back 11 different opinions.
1: Well, it's actually a huge issue, right? With all these diagnostics, because you say, okay, well, what's your gold standard? uh, What's your single standard of truth? And um, I mean, I remember for the person who, uh, what was it? Who Verisite, right? Who did this thyroid test. And the, the gold standard were these pathologists who didn't really you know, who had still a paramount disagreement on these, you know, sort of thyroid biopsies, but that's still considered the truth. So unless you actually take your, whatever your algorithms produce and actually take it all the way to the point of showing that there's some kind of demonstrable improvement in health, which is like a huge long experiment, just showing agreement. I mean, you, sorry, you might disagree with the pathologist and actually be more correct in a sense and be able to predict better, but unless, you know, but that's still for a lot of these things, your standard is how well do you agree with the existing gold standard, which isn't necessarily all that perfect. You're exactly
0: right. And uh, in my research capacity with analytic, I, I, um, um, after I was a forward deployed engineer, I was the the chief scientist for a while. I still try to remain um, in a research capacity, but my research focus with the company is on determining what is ground truth and how does that differ depending on the type of study we're interpreting, the type of diagnostic outcome we're looking for. And it's a huge issue, and a lot of people take it incredibly for granted. But I'll, I'll use an example that's um, right along the lines of, of what you just described there, where the ground truth might be wrong in a way that um, penalizes the model in a way it shouldn't. Uh, we have an algorithm that can look at chest CT scans and can often pick up malignant lung cancer up to 24 months before human radiologists can. And when we were benchmarking this for the first time externally, the performance came back saying we did way worse than we thought we did internally. And it's because the people benchmarking it had the wrong information. They were using ground truth as whatever the radiologists said looking at those scans. They didn't realize that a lot of those patients were patients that had cancer that or would go on to have cancer a year later that the algorithm figured out that the people didn't. And so um, you know, it's incredibly important that people, especially if we're going to try to surpass human performance, that we really consider what actually is the ground truth we're going for.
2: So you know, I'm curious about a different different um, line of questioning on this uh, experience at Analytic, which is you you joined there right out of college in 2015, I think is the right year, and you became the CEO three three years later or so. your first job that you held for more than six months, which is quite interesting. And it's not the same, I think, as, you know, thinking about it, like, there's lots of people who are the CEOs of startups. They, you know, woke up yesterday, they thought of their idea and they started their company. Um, And I don't mean to trivialize that, there's some really amazing companies that were founded, you know, in people's heads that way. (laughs) Um, But you actually got promoted into this job, which is unusual for somebody with that type of background, right? Um, How has that been? What was it like to change from being, um, you know, on the engineering side to uh, the leadership side, uh, on the one hand. And secondly, you know, how has your age been? is it, has it been an asset or, or a barrier or both?
0: Definitely both. And uh, I think that there's, you know, there's a benefit to being unassuming. There is also a, a detriment to that. But uh, I'm very grateful to have arrived in the role the way that I have. And I, I, I feel extremely um, confident and competent in my role. Uh, I would not feel that way if I were not promoted into it, You know, having seen the business from the nuts and bolts along the way to get there. And uh, you know, the, um, I found that if I were just the founder of the company or somebody that came into it, let's say I was hired externally to just come in as the CEO, I think that probably would have been a big problem, but it's very clear to everybody internally and externally that I was put in that position for a reason, uh, because I was somebody that was always there, um, putting a lot more time and energy into this than anybody else, clearly passionate about not just what we're building, but as I sort of alluded to earlier, how it is built and why that's important. Uh, considering all the factors that, that not just previous incarnations of analytic, but that competitors and other companies in the space might not be thinking about holistically that really mattered to make something like this successful. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a scenario where, again, both internally and externally, people could recognize that while I wasn't the founder of the company, that was the behavior that I acted with, that this thing is sort of my kid that I need to make sure it's well looked after and that I can't go to sleep until I know that every aspect of the business is well off, whether it's my responsibility or not. Somebody has to raise their hand or the car is going to, you know, head in the wrong direction. And, uh, you know, I found that that's probably the hallmark of a good leader or a good executive officer, um, regardless of how they come into that position. So being put there by trial by fire and, and, and being in a situation where nobody told me to do that, but I had to raise my hand and do it myself, I think really, prepared me incredibly well to be in that position and also to help people look past that age thing that I don't think people see me as somebody in their 20s. They see me as somebody that, you know, just is uh, um, well-to-do in this um, sort of set of problems. Uh, So I think that, you know, that's that's helped me quite a bit.
1: Have there been times where you think that your age or, you know, sort of, you know, experience profile has has had you know ha well, you were in a situation where you're like wow that's something that's a mistake i won't make in ten years
0: probably most of it i think that uh you know it, it's um it, it's clear to me that uh, i think analytic is the type of business that has infinite room for growth, and so I look at it as a um, you know I would rather treat it as an amazon or an apple than something that we you know move on quickly to and do the next thing and so from that perspective I see it as as you know infinite room to continue making a difference both with technology and in healthcare. Uh, but even if moving on to something else down the line, I feel incredibly well prepared for that. Now having not just experienced what it's like to, to run a company through the growth stages of having to raise money, you know, w- within a year of being put in that position, I had raised 40 million us dollars without ever having raised money before. Uh, you know, since then I've learned how to design clinical studies and trials, which were actively, you know, moving on with the, with the FDA, you know, I've negotiated multimillion dollar contracts and deals with governments and large hospital systems. And probably what I learned the most from is needing to hire experts who know enough about these things to teach me to sound like I know what I'm talking about and help me think through the important problems and help them build a structure to build and grow their own teams under them. Um, all of that, I think, you know, whether the next company or job has anything to do with regulatory or artificial intelligence, if it does, I've got even more of a running head start. but even if it doesn't, uh, I can't imagine that whatever I do next would be more complicated than this. Uh, so let me ask you,
2: Kevin, you, when you and I were speaking the other day, you told me that, um, intuition is one of your most valuable assets, but you live in a world of AI that is trying to, um, uh, fix the application of intuition to medicine in this case, where should intuition leave off and data start or vice versa? Where's the line?
0: I think that the right now where I would paint the line is sort of, um, uh, uh, when there's a decision being made, um, almost, and that that'll depend wildly on the vertical where, or domain where you're talking about applying artificial intelligence. But I think right now, AI, you've probably heard it a million times before AI right now is a savant, not a genius. It can do one niche thing incredibly well, but the moment that you turn the picture of the cat upside down, it no longer knows whether it's a cat, a dog, or a blueberry muffin. Uh, but as long as you keep it oriented correctly with far better than human accuracy, it'll get it right. You know, Painting it in that sort of toy example and bringing it back to healthcare sort of highlights the parts that we might want to trust with AI and the parts that we don't. If we're trying to determine if the, um, you know, trying to measure something, I think is perfectly fine to have AI do. It's a fancy calculator. Having it spot things that, that may have been missed, I think, is appropriate. But having it make the final decision and say, you know, this is the diagnostic outcome that's going to happen without human intervention, that I think is a mistake. So when it comes to that element of judgment, um, that I think is, is better suited um, for people with augmentation from AI helping them out right now. But that said, I think one of the most interesting aspects of AI that people tend not to think about is that it's really an exercise in many cases in discretizing otherwise intuitive things. So uh, I think intuition has a very real place in life. Many people can drive a car incredibly well, but they can't articulate every step their body does in order to make driving the car as smooth as it is. And AI can be used to figure out what steps it was that actually made that doable. And put into concrete math uh, mathematical steps and procedures things that people can do really well, but can't describe why they can do really well. So I think it will also have that value in in putting real real detail around what we call intuition today.
2: So I that blueberry muffin or chihuahua, um, you know, picture is like my favorite AI thing <laughs> in the slides, but. In closing, I just want to ask you. You know, I know you still channel your creativity into things outside of work. One of those things is art. Uh, among the things you've drawn recently is that picture behind you. Tell us about what inspires you to draw. Uh,
0: my mother was um, uh, was an artist, and um, growing up, you know, uh, unfortunately, my uh, mother was bed bound for my entire life, uh, uh, my childhood life, and she passed when I was a teenager. But even um, though she had impaired motor function, she would still try to paint and we would have her paintings around the house. And um, you know, it, it was great having the engineering influence of my father around, but being able to balance that out with the art influence from my mother, I think really is what um, taught me to not treat everything as a science problem. That in reality, there is a huge human element. We can tie that back to the, the space example, People could, you know, Isaac Newton may have figured out the math to get man to the moon, but he sure as hell didn't convince all of mankind to throw all their money at getting someone there. It took another 400 years for somebody to come around and do that. Yeah. And um, I think that, you know, that, that's the art element that people tend not to, to think about, that you need to paint the problem in a way that's incredibly appealing to other people and, and consider not just the logic, but the, the social engineering challenge of, you know, how do we get people working together with us the right way? And you know it, it's weird to sort of call that back to a whiteboard drawing, but I feel that that's um, you know really an important tool for people to
2: exercise creativity in any channel or outlet. Thanks, Kevin. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. Really enjoyed having you on the show. Today's guest, Kevin Lyman, was speaking to us live from the Bay Area while zooming in front of a background that he drew.
1: Wow, what a fascinating guy! Because you know when you hear oh this young guy, you know you sort of. You know whatever your top of mind associations are, you talk to him for a few minutes, and you just come away so much more you know impressed than your maybe wrong instincts might have might have assumed. I mean, he seems to have a lot more perspective and uh, gravitas uh, than um, you might expect for um, somebody who's still so relatively young. Yeah,
2: I, I uh, think about my daughter and her um, friends, and I you know they got a lot of catching up to do, man. Um, <laughs> but uh, fascinating. You can follow David's column, Astounding Health Tech at the Timmerman Report. and Please remember to give us a review on iTunes if you like the show.
1: And you can follow Lisa's writing at VentureValkyrie.com. We are grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's episode of Tectonics. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries, grow and prosper. Peace out.